Hey, podcast listeners, fans, people listening, uh, it's Michael Shelley here. This episode is a special one. We've got Ron Hinkland as our guest. This guy is perhaps the most heard guest I've ever had. I think I've said that a bunch of times. Is it possible he's heard more than Mike Love or Brian Wilson? I don't know. His voice is on literally thousands of things, and I defy anyone listening to to say they haven't heard this guy's voice. It, it, it's everywhere. It, it still is everywhere. Uh, I just love these kind of stories about how the studio system worked in the 70s and the 60s. Uh, and as I told Ron, he's just a super unusual guy, just a super unusual talent and attitude and combination. Uh, and I think that's why he was so successful for so long. Uh, there is a bonus feature at the end of this after we were done with the interview, I asked him to stay on the phone and cut a few IDs for the show. So he was having some trouble kind of stumbling on the words uh, and just, you know, good-natured about it. And he told me this funny story uh, about the one time he tried to do a voiceover. So you'll hear that at the very end uh, of the program. You'll hear the Love American-style theme, and then you'll hear him tell this story, which uh, uses a word not suitable for the uh, radio. So... I didn't play this on the radio, but you get it here on the podcast, just kind of a special, I don't know, bonus edition. But uh, I do want to also point out that this program was a two-hour Ron Hicklin uh, fest. The entire two hours was songs, music, uh, programming related to Ron, stuff he took part in, and the interview. So if you want to hear a whole, you know, almost hour of Ron Hicklin-related music, check the archive over at wfmu.org slash Michael. Uh, go Ron Hicklin crazy. Uh, just greatest guy, great music, great stuff. Enjoy this, Ron Hicklin. All right, there are the Ron Hicklin singers from the soundtrack of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And right on the telephone, Ron Hicklin joins us from Hawaii. Aloha and uh, good morning. How are you? I'm wonderful, thank you. I'm still on the right side of the sod, as we say when we're playing golf. So... <laughs> No, I'm doing fine, and I'm enjoying life. That's terrific. I'm so glad I was able to track you down, because not everybody knows your name, but I think everybody knows your voice. And I, you know, I've had a lot of guests on the program, and you must be among the most heard of them. I mean, your 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 voice is everywhere. It was so prolific. So I want to, but let's let's start at the beginning first. Tell me where you were born. I was born in in the state of Washington at the the city I was born in was Burlington, Washington, where my dad was principal at the high school in Anacortes, but that was the closest hospital. So that's that's where I was born. And were you always singing, or when did you start singing? Uh, basically, I started singing at, at about three. I started singing songs of the day, which were like uh, Bluebirds Over the White Cliffs of Dover and uh, Coming In on a Wing and a Prayer and things like that, which were... Uh, Songs of the Second World War, which was being born right before that. So that's, that's what I grew up singing. And did folks encourage you, or, or did, you have, did you know you had a special instrument, or was there someone else around you who at a young age helped uh, encourage you? Well, I'll, I'll be brief about this, uh, this background, because by, by age five, my mom had sent me and my brother to take piano lessons. 
And I progressed rapidly in, in the piano lessons. My piano teacher could be quoted by saying, my God, you're, you're so talented musically, I wish my son was, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and by the time I was in the sixth grade, I was playing some very intricate things. But I found it that I'd rather play sports and stuff than, than continue with that. But vocally, by the time I was 11, I s- started really progressing rapidly because that was my instrument. I found that with, with any instrument, I could pick it up and sight read and start playing it. But the, the problem was I thought vocally rather than thinking the instrument. Uh, if somebody took away the music on Happy Birthday or something, I couldn't play it. You know, so, but vocally I could do anything. So that's kind of that story. And then by the time I was in the seventh grade in school, we formed a quartet, which was uh, all with, all of us lived within a mile from each other. And we formed a quartet and call it the Smooth Shavers. And we did a bunch of barbershop <laughs> uh, quartet stuff. And then we rapidly, by the ninth grade, we appeared on a, talent contest at King TV in Seattle, and we won that. And for two years, my sophomore and junior year in high school, uh, we had our own television shows, an hour show each week on King TV. Was that just singing the hits of the day? Yeah, we were singing hits of the day. However, we were motivated by the four freshmen and the high lows and, and some very intricate jazz stuff. Uh, and we we were a lot younger than them, but we were doing the same kind of things and doing our own arrangements. And by the time I got into college at the University of Washington, I had the rest of the quartet pledge the fraternity with me, and we won Songfest there, and then Capital signed us. And so we went to Hollywood. But by that time, you weren't the smooth shavers, right? No. No, we finally adopted a name in Hollywood uh, of the eligibles. And our dream then, you know, basically when you when you grow up in the sticks the way we did, you either thought of some kind of celebrity or some kind of uh, big record contract or motion pictures or things like that. Or if you were going to be in vocal music, you were a teacher or something. And there was a big discrepancy between those two things. And it wasn't till probably two and a half years into our seven-year contract uh, with Capital that, that I came to the conclusion I'd rather be, I was the lead singer of the group, but it, I came to the conclusion I'd rather be a studio singer because I, I didn't enjoy celebrity. I enjoyed singing. And it was just so much more pleasant for me and rewarding for the kind of talent that I was, meaning that I never pictured myself as a celebrity. I was too shy. I I was afraid to talk to people, you know, on stage. I was afraid to to announce for the group or, or do that. But singing another story. Gotcha. So so being in the studio is a perfect place for you. Uh, we did hear some Eligibles uh, records earlier this morning. There's some interesting stuff there, and like you say, it's kind of a, a younger take on uh, some of those more established vocal groups. And then there's also some work with Bobby V and stuff like that. Who, who, who hooked that together? Well, uh, th- that was the real breakthrough into the studios for me, because 
I got loosely involved with Snuff Garrett, uh, who was very successful producing in, in that era, and uh, Buzz Kaysen, who was uh, working with, with Snuff. Buzz introduced me to Snuff, and, and through Snuff, I started doing the Bobby V stuff, and I started doing other things. And after Buzz left town, it was just specifically he was calling me to to do all of his records, and that's where everything led from there to meeting the original Ross Bagdasarian, uh, who uh, did the Chipmunks. So I did the Chipmunks. I did that for two de- generations. Uh, for for him and for his son. And so out of that also, uh, later when Snuff teamed up with Leon Russell, I, I did the Gary Lewis and the Playboys, and Gary and I sang lead on everything, and I did all the harmony parts myself. One of the interesting things about your career and is that it, it embodies not just one small sliver of the music industry, but there's some 60s pop records and some sort of easy listening records and lots of TV and movie soundtracks and later into the 70s, all kinds of pop records, all kinds of radio jingles and, you know, commercial jingles. It it really kind of spread out. But the early part, the 60s, there is some very interesting things like I found this record, and correct me if if any of this is not actually you, because sometimes on the internet there'll be information that's not correct. Believe it or not, uh, you got that right. <laughs> yeah, but I, there's a record by the Zip Codes, and it's all songs about Mustang cars, and it seems like it's just a bunch of studio musicians and a bunch of studio singers, and there's no real group. But it seemed like during the 1960s there was a lot of that going around. So, is that a project you remember at all? I remember doing all kinds of things like that, and it was with Buzz while Buzz was still in town, and it was the very beginning of our career. I remember even using my my Volkswagen Bug as a sound on one of the records, which was really funny because like a hot rod, you know, and here you got a Volkswagen uh, four, four banger, you know, but... Uh, it it uh, we we go out in the alley and record the sound and and do all kinds of stuff. But it was <laughs> it was a very ex, uh, exciting era uh, from the standpoint. I remember working when when Leon and I and and stuff and and into the studios. It was and with Hal Blaine, you know, we'd be sitting in there trying to uh, figure out new sounds to where Leon would be singing into the timpani. And miking it on the other side, and and Snuff would be taking our voices and running them through the Leslie speakers, and and we were recording things backwards, you know, and all of those kinds of experimental sounds that mm. uh, were all part of the industry in those days. I had Bones uh, Howe on the show, and he told me that you stood a few feet behind Gary Lewis and would sort of ghost his his voice so that it was kind of thicker so that it was more on the notes and i also had gary lewis on the program who claimed that that wasn't true at all he also claims he plays drums on everything but sometimes you can hear hal blaine counting off uh, the song <laughs> so okay well you know god love him i i don't want to dis- disagree totally but i would like to clarify that yes when snuff was doing um this diamond ring with leon with Gary, he didn't know. I, I didn't know anything about Gary Lewis. I did, he hadn't emerged on the scene, and I didn't know he was Jerry's son. 
And I was sitting at home, and they called me to come down to the studio and said, we're recording this kid, we need some help. And and I was more than happy to help because I hadn't really, my career really hadn't broken through the way I was hoping. And so I ran down there to the took my car, got down into Hollywood, and uh, I walked in, they were recording this diamond ring. And they said, you know, that we're just at a stalemate here, it's not going anywhere. And I said, well, let me put on a harmony part in the bridge, and that'll give it maybe a, a little lift there. So I designed a harmony part and sang in the bridge. Uh, when we were done with that, they said, yeah, that, that works. And then Bones, who was mixing, said exactly what he told you. He said, he suggested, Snuff, why don't you have Ron sing with him? It'll round out his voice a little bit. So I actually stood next to him and sang lead with him. And we did about four tracks of, of everything. Then I put on the harmony parts myself. And to the best of my knowledge, Hal was playing drums on everything because uh, he was he was the only one, he and I were in the studios, and there's pictures of Hal Blaine that Hal Blaine took. It, it showed Leon and Ron, uh, playing piano and Ron and and uh, Gary, and it said Ron, uh, Gary's vocal coach, Ron Hicklin. <laughs> so uh, at that point, I remember when the record came out and it went to number one, I got a check for $25, <laughs> and it was a check from Jerry Lewis. And it blew my mind because I didn't know that was his uh, father. Yeah. And I I should have, you know, just had it framed and said, you know, thanks for the number one record or for <laughs> all you've done for my son. Because he sent me a card that said, thanks for all you've done for my son. And I took the $25 and cashed it immediately because I needed the money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we did about 10 straight top hits and then... Gary left Snuff as a producer. Uh, his choice, and Snuff called me and asked me not to work with them anymore. Oh. And so I just said, well, you know, I'm, I'm really busy with things, so I didn't work with Gary after that. So no more, tw- no more $25 checks for you. <laughs> well, <laughs> <laughs> and I spent it all in one place. <laughs> well, I, I, I well, I will say that I like Gary's voice, and I'm sure he played drums on some album cuts probably. And, uh, you know, his voice is, is unique, and it sounds great coming out of that AM radio, and it's certainly a part of the 60s. So I want to make sure we give him his due, but I agree with that. Oh, my you, gosh. Yeah, without yeah. without in any of these cases, without the lead artist, all the background work and all of the uh, the other studio work that I did, to me, we weren't the ones that created the sound. They were the ones who created the the print of their voice. And mm-hmm. from that point on, everything I did and was committed to was to complement that. Yeah, but you know, sometimes I, as I was listening to so much of your music this week, I was thinking that that oftentimes your work is the glue that kind of holds it all together, maybe, or keeps it light, or, you know what I mean? It's kind of a a, a very important ingredient. And, you know, there's records by uh, Yellow Balloon and Gary Puckett and the Monkees and all these uh, uh, jingles and things. And Yes. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of... Uh, so was this Diamond Ring the first huge hit you had the first time you heard yourself on the radio? That was my first number one. Yeah. I'll give you just a, a brief you know, cover a brief area there and you can, regarding hit records, and you can uh, stop me anytime you want. Uh, Also, I... 
Holly Holy with Neil Diamond. I had 18 singers on that. Last Train to Clarksville, I did all the, the studio work. Basically, Mickey and, uh, and David and um, Tommy and Bobby and myself. Uh, Indian Reservation, that was three of us with Mark Lindsay, which was, I think, a, a number one hit at that point of all time. Another interesting thing in a completely different bag is uh, the Letterman's When I Fall in Love. If you ever listen to that hit record, you'll hear an octave above the melody, and that's me singing. They hired me to sing the melody an octave higher than they did. Uh, also, all of the Union Gap, Gary Puck, Union Gap, Young Girl, Get Out of My Life, and Woman, Woman, and uh, Over You, and all of those. The the Chipmunks, everything from there to the, the three tenors, uh, which, you know, just involves, I, the only reason I mentioned that is because it's such a wide, wide bag, you know, things yeah. with the, uh, you know, but those, those kind of things, you know, excuse me. There you go. That was, uh, I just flipped to something else in my uh in my songs here and love American style came on. <laughs> you interrupted yourself. Uh, yeah. It, it, those, I'm sure you're going to get into those areas, yeah. but uh, as far as those hit records, you know, Arizona with uh, Mark Lindsay and the candy man with Sammy Davis and precious and few climax, obviously the Partridge family, because four of us did all the, the backgrounding for uh, yeah. the Partridge family. Four of us did all the singing except for um, uh, except for the lead. So. Except for David. Yeah. There's this huge body of work. Tell me about your busiest period. What years were your busiest period, and how many sessions a day or a week would you end up singing on? My busiest period, once I did my first number one record, which was this diamond ring, people start saying, who's doing that? And you don't care about the public, but you do care about the industry knowing who's doing it. And uh, at that point, uh, to get me on a record, they put me in charge of hiring all the other voices and stuff. So that's where the contractor aspect of it came in. You had to be a singer on the session and then hire the other voices. So I started doing that all over the town and by 67 66 67 all the way through the 80s and and right up until i quit but around 95 what happened in the industry for me is i made transitions from from the initial everything was built around the records and around the pop hits that that we had done people trying to achieve the same kind of sounds it would be like um, when I did MASH, did the main title, four of us did the main title. And when uh, Johnny Mandel called, he said, you know, you're closer to the pop industry than I am because I've been doing scoring for so long. He says, could you, you know, come in and do this thing and, and do this main title? So we did. Uh, and it was that kind of a thing. You made a transition into other areas because people were trying to get closer to the demographic that you'd establish with the pop records. And so you move into motion pictures and the people I worked with there, Lalo Schifrin and uh, 
John Williams and Bernstein and, oh my gosh, uh, James Horner. I did all of James' stuff and I just loved his writing. So everything from, you know, Glory and, uh, and Apollo 13 and all those things, uh, it's just, a, it was a marvelous training ground. And ba- of course, I, I unfortunately didn't mention Burt Backrack right up front because I did, uh, as you, you were just playing. I did the. Uh, we won the Academy Award score on the uh, Butch Cassidy. So, so walk me through a typical day for you, a typical busy day. Do you walk into the studio and you? Is it a typically a song you've never heard before? You don't know the melody and you just uh, see see the sheet music and it's all sight reading. Is it just that quick? It it is, but it it is only from the you know from my standpoint. I was. I was a weird collection of talents. Uh, one, I was very good at uh, at accounting, <laughs> which you don't usually say. What's the deal with an artist? You know, and most of them don't do business, uh, don't uh, d- don't add two and two and get four and stuff like that because they're artistically oriented. And I was an odd collection. Of, I wanted my career to last. And the only way I could make it last was to continue to hit that high mark of doing hit records. And so uh, my attention to detail was extreme. Whatever, if we were doing the Jackson 5 or if we were doing Michael or any of these things uh, or Sinatra, God knows, uh, you know, different bags, you'd bring in the right people with you to make sure that you had a chance to make that sound that, that made that successful. So uh, it wouldn't be just the same group all the time. It would be borrowing from the, the talent pool that was out there to make sure that you hit that demographic. And so I was detail-oriented about doing that. So there were cases where if you were doing something and the composer had written every, or the arranger had written all the arrangements and that everybody being able to sight read and everybody being able to reach that climax together was very, very important to me. So you didn't have to do 20 takes to teach somebody a part. It was just, no, you, you just hit it while you still loved it and while it was still interesting. And you hit that mark and moved on to the next thing. Uh, I can think of one occasion where I did Dean Martin, and we did eight sides in two hours. So... <laughs> Uh, that's how fast we would we we would record with the right people, but secondly, the you know just hitting that hitting that mark was one thing. If there was no chart, then we had the ability to write our own chart. So, a producer would call you in without with no just we just want some background vocals here, Ron. What can you do? And and it would be up to your it, exactly. Mm. There was always that element in the industry. And you'd find yourself working for people that that weren't musically hip, but they they were very uh, experienced. Let's say with uh, with what would sell, and they would know it when they heard it. It's very interesting because you you're working with you mentioned Hal Blaine and the rest of the Wrecking Crew people. These are some seriously creative professional people who have that ability, like you said, to come in in a three-hour or four-hour session, whatever, and cut a lot of music that they've never heard before. And I think some producers probably had a real specific thing in their head, and some didn't, and let let you guys um, experiment or let you bring your own thing to the project. But it must have 
I mean, do you remember coming home at nights feeling that you were in this vortex of creativity? All those people, even the even the um, the engineers, oh. yeah. Oh my God! I I remember Lalo once. Lalo uh, Schifrin once said, "You know, Ron, you're working around the clock. You know what? You could charge three times what you charge." Hmm. And and maybe work a little less, but you, you're going to be doing great. And I said, Lalo, let me tell you something. Uh, and this is, this is a left-handed compliment that I'm going to make here. I said, I have the opportunity to walk with kings. And I said, every time I walk in that studio, I'm in there with people that I admire, and they're having me there because they respect what I do. And so... Uh, you know, if John Williams says, okay, here's what I'm trying to accomplish. Now, go ahead and tell everybody what to do because you have more experience with that than I do. <laughs> and, you know, then you sit down with your singers and you say, okay, here's what we're going to do. And wham, you do it, That's you know, great. and you achieve the attitude and you sell that thing. Uh, That's great. So, yeah, that, those, are the, those are the things, but it, it would involve people that were in, in the embryonic stages of their career that that had maybe written something or uh, were creating something and they wanted help and uh in a lot of cases you'd say okay i don't, I don't know what l- listen to this and see what you guys think you know uh, you know a, a, a good example of that was um bowling green with the uh everly brothers well the Everly brothers didn't generally use background singers except Bowling Green, uh, Al Caps and I and uh, and Stan uh, from my quartet. We did the arrangement on the spot, mm. and it had success from that thing. And there was sounds in there. Uh, you mentioned Yellow Balloon. The Yellow Balloon was done as a head arrangement on the session, and it was my quartet. I ran over between sessions and did it and left. Uh, <laughs> And, and, and I brought the, my quartet in, and we did it as a publisher's demo. And uh, after I left, they said, they were, can one of you guys do a lead on it? And I went back to another session. And so Stan stayed around, and Stan from my quartet, and he put the lead on. And the next thing I knew, they released it under the name the, the Yellow Balloon by the Yellow Balloon. Yeah, and yeah. We, we hadn't signed anything. It was a big ma- uh, Magilla at the time because we were under contract. Ah. So uh, all of those kinds of things happened. But all of the uh, Yellow Balloon, the reason I mention that is because the intricate aspects of the, of the arrangement were all ours. I mean, we we did a head arrangement. There was no arrangement on the session. We just walked in and and said, "Okay, let's do it this way," and we just did it. Ah, so it's such a lovely uh, arrangement. Let's let's talk about the other side of the coin. Uh, I mean, clearly you're a professional who takes it very seriously, but I assume there's times when you walk into a session and the song is no good. You know, there's not much you can do with it. You just hold your tongue and do the best you can. Is that that that? All right. <laughs> you know, this is a, a well-thought-out question, because <laughs> I, I have an answer for that. Uh, people used to say to me, what, uh, it, this would be on the session. They would say, well, what do you think, you know, what do you think of this song? And I said, you know, honestly, I don't. And they said, what do you mean by that? I said, I don't think about the song. I honestly think about the performance. 
who am I going to reach with this and how we can control our performance? Because we didn't write the song and we didn't hire the artist and we didn't do any of that stuff. So what you're there to do is the best you know how to do to make something successful. Mm. So you sit there and say, you never say this is a piece of junk. You know, you never even acknowledge it in your mind. I don't think successfully you can do that. I think if you say everything, I don't like this bag, this is a terrible bag, well then, uh, good luck on reaching the demographic of that bag, because uh, that's going to show. Yeah, that's a very smart answer, Ron. Let me remind everybody, Ron Hicklin is our guest today. And of course, uh, we're talking about his work uh, with the Ron Hicklin Singers, who, uh, as we've learned, is kind of, was kind of a floating group of uh, associates, whoever was needed for a job. But definitely there was sort of a signature sound, which I guess mostly was uh, through your arranging. Was there other groups doing this? Was there other groups in Hollywood who were your competition? There were... You know, all I can say is there were people came from all over the world to Hollywood. That's the first thing that I recognized, just like we did. And the the reason you end up working a lot is because you reach that status where you were first call. And when I mean first call, if you were number one, people were trying to get you. Because they, if they're going to pay scale for something, why pay scale with some unknown when they can get somebody that's really uh, a produces time and time again. So what happens is after you break through and get an opportunity, no matter how long it takes, and you reach a certain level, then you're almost a fool to either say, no, I can't make the session, or two, to be out of town. Uh, Because uh, I would go for eight years without a a break. Uh, (laughs) And I I would work every time somebody said, uh, Sinatra's got a session at such and such. Can, can you make it? The answer was yes. Yeah, uh, because if you said no, you don't expect Sinatra to cancel his schedule to, to try to find <laughs> out when you can make it. You know, what happens is somebody else is there. Yeah. And if somebody else is there and they're hungrier or better, God help you, or more cooperative or a better personality or something else, you're, you're done. Yeah. You're not back. And yeah. so the answer is yes. And so I would put together things, and I know you asked earlier, and I'll answer it at this point. The most I ever did in a session was uh, in a day was seven sessions. And I was, when I quit, I, I remember I lost my voice in 19, in, when I was 61, and I said I was doing uh, Snow Falling on Cedars. And I said at the time, I said, uh, on looking back at it, I said, I wonder what the the best people are doing now when I'm with when I contact people and say, Ron, you were the last to do five sessions a day. You know, you were the last because right now we might do five a month. Huh. You know, and so it was it was that kind of a thing. Uh, the energy that was created in the music that we did in the '60s and the styles and all of that kind of stuff. One of, one of my it wasn't one of my biggest hits that I was involved with, but one of the things I'm really proud of is a rock and roll lullaby by B.J. Thomas. If you ever get a chance, listen to that, because it, it was another head arrangement that I did on the date, and I just took every kind of overdone lick that was 
typical in the 60s. Everything from the, the little darling thing to the Beach Boy stuff that we've done to the uh, uh, to the shanana uh, things, all of those bags, and just just shoved them into that record, and including Dwayne Eddy guitar playing from uh, from Glenn Campbell, and, you know, and just different things like that, and just stuck them in there. So uh, I got a kick out of that because of the way that builds with uh, B.J. Thomas. Uh, you mentioned Union Scale earlier, so uh, and. If you were doing the contracting, is it was it double scale, and did they pay you for your arrangements, or was that just kind of a part of the doing the job? No, there was no pay for arrangements. It was just like uh, whatever we can do to to help. So it was it, it was indeed, even though you were so well known, it was still union scale. It was union scale. When I started, it was nineteen dollars and fifty cents for <laughs> an hour or for a recorded side. When I quit, when I basically quit doing after around the time of um, Indian Reservation, and when I when I say I quit, I mean I moved from records totally into other areas. The records were paying me scale, and I, and what happened is the way Union Scale worked is it would be per side, recorded side or per hour. And there was a two-unit minimum. So if I could do eight sides with Dean Martin in two hours, then I got eight times scale. If I did two hours, uh, if I did two sides, or if I did one side in two hours, I'd still get two hours. Gotcha. Two scale. And so it behooved us to be fast and good and uh, and good enough to be welcome back, you know, so that it wasn't a point of just being fast. It was being hitting the mark and moving on. So that was scale and scale for, for me as a contractor, when, when we put contractor into the, the thing, just to make more uh, into our uh, union agreements, just to make it more, put somebody in charge so there was some kind of less chaos in the session. Somebody was directly responsible. I said, I didn't care if it was $20. I didn't care what it was, just so there was somebody recognized to be in charge and to hire the voices and to get the job done. And so that's what the original intent was. It turned out to be where I'd probably get about scale and a half. When I did Indian Reservation, scale had gotten up to $30 by that time, over over a decade and a half. Do, do session folks, clear this up, do session folks like yourself make any royalty on anything? No, that's the reason I said I made the transition. What I did was I was working around the clock, I mean, and I mean around the clock. I averaged about 18 hours a day in front of a mic for better part of 40 years. So as I was be, just working around the clock, I could realize that I'm only able to make the scale times whatever time I was. So I was making in six figures, but I was making, it was a limit on that because there's only so much time and only so much energy left. And so what happened is back with the beat goes on, I went in in 20 minutes and did, in 20 minutes, did a national spot for uh, Plymouth, I think at the time. And I took two of the other guys from my group, we went in, and we did it in 20 minutes. And 
I ended up getting paid for the session, and then suddenly residuals started pouring in, and I was making thousands of dollars on that. And I thought, my God, this is a, there's a hierarchy here of of people struggling that are on the road, the people that are got their foot in place that are working in the studios, and then the people that graduated to things that paid, you know, to do them while you're still anonymous. So when I started moving and I formed my company, I, I built one person's company, and that's where I really got my teeth. That was Piece of Cake with Don Pystrip. Uh, I did his first session all the way till I quit, but we ended up being number one in L.A., just doing all kinds of commercials and stuff. And then I left and started my own company in, in 83, and we won three straight Clio's right out of the box on uh, Wheaties and, uh, and things like... Um, California Raisins and Levi Blues and all that stuff. And I couldn't believe how, as, as most lead artists are concerned, and this includes um, uh, commercials, if you have somebody doing a voice for Kawasaki, uh, a voiceover, they were signing a contract that limited them to that. With us, I could do Kawasaki, Suzuki, Honda, uh, Yamaha, I had them all going at the same time uh, while somebody else was doing a lead on it. And so I would hire all these things, put them together and do them all. And when cars and beers and all those things were hitting, uh, all the residuals were hitting from the NFL and everything else. So that said, okay, this is where we go. So I formed Killer Music and formed and built four studios for my own work in Hollywood. Uh, but at the same time, uh, other residual things would get my attention uh, because, uh, like, as we talked about a little bit about motion pictures, I did about 400 of them, you know, all of the dirty, hairy stuff and all of, all of these things that, uh, that involve different arrangers. But one of the choice jobs of my life uh, was when Charlie Fox, and I did a, a bunch of things like Love American Style that, that played a little bit ago. Uh, when I did uh, Love American Style and things like that with Charlie and Killing Me Softly, I did the original demo on that. And when, when I did those things, suddenly I went in, I got called in to, to start for the initial session of Happy Days. And we did the main title. And between Charlie and I worked out the arrangement for the main title and we got it done and I hired the voices and we sang that. And then that turned into 11 years that I did all the music for Happy Days and nine years for all the music for uh, Laverne and Shirley, including the Sound Like Records, because I would bring in, I would write arrangements for those things and bring in everybody and we just start nailing a song every 20 minutes and it would every time they play them uh in this in the shows we were paid for having done the show so in three days i could record the entire season and as people aged within the show we would have new songs new eras and we would be doing that so that was a great job and that's still paying residuals that's interesting so that's the difference between that and records, because we, as record artists, we weren't getting anything. 
we were getting what, whatever whatever that hour was. Gotcha. That makes perfect so. sense. So, you know, you mentioned like Kawasaki. I was listening to your Kawasaki "Let's the Good Times Roll" jingle. Yeah, it's like the, uh-huh. it's, it's perhaps the catchiest thirty seconds in the world. Uh, were things like that cut with the vocals live? You know, what, what percentage of of all these things we've talked about were cut with the vocals and the musicians playing in at the same time? Well, in the initially they were they were all done at the same time which is one of my favorite ways to record. But later, they, they were, uh, and, and in my own company, we would lay the tracks and then I would go up and, uh, and put on the leads, whoever I'd hired to do leads, and then we'd go out and do all the background stuff ourselves and then we'd mix. So the, the voices were generally the, the latter part of the session, but all of that was conceived prior to that. The, the best part of doing everything live, which was my favorite way, was if you were in a studio with Mathis, for instance, you would have him on his mic and the voices, if there were six or seven of us, you know, over on in a little booth on our mic and you would have the string section, the brass section, the rhythm section, all of those spread out in the studios in their own sections. Uh, as the arranger would run something down, he said, okay, let's run this down. And if you'd, you'd sight read it, everybody'd run down, they'll try to get balances in the booth. And then suddenly, if, if it occurred to me that I could, uh, I had an idea about something, I could go over to the arranger and quietly say, you know, the rhythm of this, of this lyric would be better expressed possibly in this manner. So if, if we were speaking to that, that lyric, it would be more effective to do it this way. You, it, do you understand what I'm saying? And they'd say, yeah. And then say, okay, in pencil, and they'd tell the room, in pencil, just change this rhythm to this, and uh, let's see how it works. And suddenly, you'd run through it, and then the, the, the arranger would say, okay, put it in ink. Let's change it. Mm. Well, that was the difference between live and and later. Because live, you could be... In your expertise, you could be part of the input of the success of that. Later, you could come later in the recording industry, you could come along and say, okay, we can look for perfection, but we're a synthesizer doing this. All the rhythms are there. Everything is there. We're just this chord that's going there. Uh, We can make sure that we're perfect on it, or you can punch it in at a certain point and make sure we're perfect on it. But... That doesn't necessarily say, okay, our contribution was not the same. So live was much more exciting and much more a part of the development of stuff. But later, just doing things perfectly, yeah, that was easy to do. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, you know, there's, like we said earlier, there's all kinds of sessions and in, into the seventies, you know, people like Leif Garrett and Cher and, uh, you know the part, the part, the, you know all kinds of, and then even you know, kind of you change for the time. Still, Graham Parsons and the Tubes and Elton John and Sparks. So it wasn't uh, only you know Square Records. It was sort of uh, a lot, like you said, a lot of different bags. Uh, I want to talk oh, yeah. about. I want to name a few different things and just briefly, like a sentence or two, if you can remember something about the session or about what happened when the record broke or whatever. I just want to just just 
kind of go through a few of each example of each style that you guys did. Uh, just a couple sentences or a paragraph, if you could. Uh, you know, the Love American Style theme for me is it's it's like your thumbprint almost. You know what I mean? It sounds to uh-huh. me that that's the sound of, of Ron Hicklin right there. It's just that happy, bubbling, smooth, but the, 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 the harmonies are really tightly woven together. Yeah. A lot of that is the personnel. A lot of it is the writing. But all of it, the, the common denominator that I said at, at the time, always to all my singers that I used, is the reason you're here on this session is, is because I believe in you. You don't have to wait for me to direct you. You have to direct, be self-directed in yourself because you have to give the best you've got to give to everything we do. And what happens is in other people's industries, you can say, okay, this is what I used to do or this is what I did, and there's no, there, there isn't the same living proof. Hmm. Uh, every mistake that we made as recording in recording that was left is a, is a testimonial to your probably being a human being. But the thing that I tried to leave and I wanted us to leave is our recorded history had to be whatever bag we were in had to measure up. And that kind of print that we put on things had people coming from around the world to uh, to do station breaks with us, to do all kinds of things because they weren't the norm. They weren't the average. Yeah, I completely agree with you. Uh, the, let's talk about the Partridge family, because if you look at a picture of the Partridge family, uh, and then you hear what those records sound like, it doesn't sound anything like what a bunch, what mostly, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so funny to me, because the, the, the you know, the obviously um, D- David sounds like David, but the the rest of the family doesn't sound like a bunch of little kids and a mom, uh, but again. I know. Yeah. <laughs> But it's- I, I know, but, but you know, it was fashioned after the success that we had with the monkeys. Uh, and after I left the monkeys, the show went one year and then it went off the air and I came back to do one, one record. And I came back to do that record with, uh, with David and it was Valerie. And, and that was after the show was gone. So the success that we had there uh, caused uh, Screen Gems to give me a call back when when they were putting together the idea of the Partridge family. And Shorty Rogers called me and said, uh, Ron, we're going to do, a, a, based on the Cowsills type of uh, success, we're going to do this, this kind of idea. And I said, okay, I learned something in the past, and that's not to, not, not to mess with trying to record actors. I said, I'd rather just come in and just do the thing. So when we did the pilot, I hired a group of us, and we came in, and we did, we did the pilot. And for the first three shows or so, it was just us. And uh, what happened is uh, Shorty Rogers called later and said, Ron, I, it got the highest rating since Mission Impossible as a pilot. So uh, he said, the show's going to go and all that stuff. He said, that's the good news. The bad news is he was being replaced. So they were going to replace him with somebody that may be closer to the record industry, which turned out to be Wes, Wes Farrell. And then at the same time, 
And this is well documented in the book on the subject. They came in and they said, okay, let's keep everybody that that Ron had and let Ron go. <laughs> so, so, in other words, if, if you cut off the head, maybe everybody else will be more directable. And it's also documented in the book that the, the other singers refused to do it without me. So, uh, we went ahead and we... Uh, the four of us, John Baylor, Tom Baylor, and uh, Jackie Ward and myself, were the voices. But what happened is they discovered that uh, David could sing. And when David sang, now it wasn't that Shirley couldn't sing. It was that Shirley was in a bag that was a musical comedy. And she was very, very good in that, in that bag. But that wasn't the... the the uh, demographic people were trying to reach. So uh, we were doing the singing, and uh, they said, okay, with David even, uh, we would do like a quarter rap on the capstan and stuff just to, to speed up his voice a tad, make it a little more youthful. And then uh, there were gimmicks like that. But then again, we did all the stuff with, with David, and David turned out to be a huge star. And uh, we did five gold albums, and uh, it was an interesting few years, again, of my life that, that just turned out to be recording sessions. You go in and you do them and you move on because you're not out on the road performing. You're not uh, going into concerts. You're not doing stuff like that. Let me ask you about, uh, I was listening to this Hugo Montenegro Lady in Cement uh, track. It, uh-huh. you know, very much the vocals, like, as you said earlier, are sort of an instrument. You know, it's very very much just part of the, you know, like a soloing instrument throughout the thing. Were those sessions a little more difficult than uh, a, a pop record? Well, uh, the, the the beauty of of the relationship I had with Hugo and I loved Hugo, but the lady in cement, I did a number of albums with Hugo and we would do classical gas and good vibrations and all of the songs of the day, MacArthur park and things like that. And all of the, uh, the spaghetti Western stuff, you know, all of those things. And every one of them, Hugo was arranging from, from a jazz uh, standpoint. So the voices that I, were bring, I was bringing in, we would come in and we'd pick up the chart and we'd sight read it and just start cranking them out. And I remember uh, Jorge Calandrelli uh, telling me years later that he'd come up from Argentina or wherever he was from and he'd set into a session and he watched us pick up a chart and sight read it at RCA and he thought, I'm going back home. <laughs> <laughs> back where they stood around a piano and tried to learn something, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's some very complex stuff there. Let me, let's talk about something less complex. Am I right that it's you guys on the Batman theme singing Batman? Oh, yeah. That, it's one word. There, there's a, I, I got to I'll interrupt you with a story on that. It's when uh, when we did that, there was uh, three like three guys and three girls or something like that. And I was clear up on on the highest note up there. With there was a girl and a guy on each part, and it was very high. It was up in the soprano register, and it was real strident. And we hit, they hit those. And it, anyway, Bill Cole, who was one of the guys, where it says on the music it says words and music by Neil Hefty. He put word and music <laughs> 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 so that genius. was the Batman session 
<laughs> That's perfectly fine. Yeah, it's funny how though you know a song with one word is one of your most well-known uh, recordings. Uh, you yeah. mentioned climax, precious and few. That's kind of like one of those songs that kind of signals the the end of the Wrecking Crew and the end of the Top Forty era. Could you see that that change was coming? That sort of more self-contained bands were coming in. Was it? Did you see that coming down the the highway? Not not really, because I was moving. I was moving, I was saying, you know, I had done 25 albums with Ray Conniff, for instance, and I had all the singers on that, and, and Ray just wouldn't record without me. And what, bless his heart, Ray would sit there and say, Ron, it's my band. And I said, yeah, but Ray, they're here because I brought them in, and I, and I can communicate with them, and I can tell them what we need. You just tell me what you want, and I'll get it done for you. And it was that kind of a, an arrangement that we had. And so he just started writing everything around us, doing lead, me doing lead, or, the, you know, within the group, the guys doing this stuff. And it was uh, an era that while I got, I was working night and day, and and still t- building these commercial companies and everything else. And finally, somebody said, you know, you ought to knock off some of that stuff. And I and I decided, well, you know, maybe I should. And then devote it to stuff that really pays for me to do it. Uh, and so that's when I started making the transition. But that record, uh, Climax, that was, uh, Tom Baylor actually... Uh, hired me to do that and it was tom and i and and uh and his wife and the and a girlfriend which now just between us and the world uh i never did that i never hired platonically that way i i just uh i didn't want anything to do with the uh, objectivity of doing the best i knew how but that was a hit and uh and it was a kind of a transition, as you said. You talked about your sort of professional ability to, to take yourself, your judgment out of a session and to just think about delivering. But like when you're listening to playback of Precious and Few, did you think this is going to be a giant hit? Did you kind of, did that light go off? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say that it did. Yeah. Uh, because when I listened to things, I was listening to what we could do better, and I heard warts all over in That's that. That's so and interesting. And I kept thinking, "Oh, we can do that," but I wasn't in charge. You're and wrong. So it, 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 You're an yeah. unusual guy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I mean that in the nicest way. I mean, I think that's why you were able to a- achieve uh, so much. You know, it's it's amazing. Um, yeah, and one of the things that I think people need to understand is a lot of people uh, used you or your group and named it something else, like the Ray Conniff Singers or the Charles Fox Singers. Oh, yeah. yeah, that was just you all, all the way through. Tell me about, just quickly, tell me, I, you worked sometimes with uh, Thurl uh, Ravenscroft. Thurl uh, Ravenscroft, right. What a... Uh, and a lot of folks know his voice from Tony the Tiger, things like that. He had a super, super deep voice. Was he the the lowest singer you've ever encountered? Uh, no. Uh, when I the, one of the first movies I ever did, uh, when I came to town, it was just like they were hiring so deep into this movie that we got called on it. And that was music man. And I was in there with like 70 singers and I was a kid basically. And I'm, I'm 19 years old or so. And I'm, and I'm sitting amongst the best talent I've ever heard in my life. And most of them 
because I'd grown up listening to radio and everything else, most of them I could recognize their voices. I had no idea who they were. I didn't know their names, but I had the greatest respect for the fact that they could sight read so well and they, and they, they, they were great, great singers. Well, Thurl was on that, but there was also a guy named Delos Juice. Uh, who was possibly as low or lower than Thurl, but that that, that might be the only. Uh, oh. There was a spot in the in uh, in that movie where he says, "Providing they are contrary," and and as he said, sang that, he went way down there to that. <laughs> but on one session I did with Julie London, I had Thurl singing a pedal F. Now, pedal F is way to hell down there. <laughs> <laughs> and Thurl said to me later, he says, can I get a recording of that? He says, that's the first time I've ever sung that note. <laughs> <laughs> well, to, to, be able to, know, sing, yeah, to be able to sing that low, but do it on pitch is, is super, super oh, yeah. tough. Yeah. Well, that's the whole thing. Uh, I never asked people to do something I didn't think that they couldn't do. Uh, because the, the secret to me to be successful is to make sure that you're exposing that which you can do well. And then people say, my God, that's incredible. You know, but if you're out there exposing your soft underbelly, nobody's going to be impressed at all. You know, they're going to say, oh, I can do that. <laughs> so. You mentioned the Beach Boys earlier. Did you do any Beach Boys sessions? Yes, I did. And the, the interesting thing is by the time I was doing some of the Beach Boys, so Glenn Campbell and I were signed to Capitol together. So doing Ricky Nelson and uh, all of that era, that's where I met Jerry Fuller, who did all of the writing for the Union Gap and production and all that stuff. And Jerry was baritone. Al Capps, my my bass and my quartet, was singing bass. Glenn was singing second tenor, and I was singing top tenor. We were backing Rick Nelson. Uh, and that, and so all of that kind of spread, because Glenn had been doing uh, the Beach Boys. And I got a call to do a number of things with, with the Beach Boys, in, for the Beach Boys and independently in productions that they were doing. And so uh, the first time I showed up, I showed up at, at Brian's home, which for some reason was painted purple. Uh, and uh, <laughs> at the chagrin, I'm sure, of, of all of his neighbors. But uh, we walked into the living room, and the living room, he had the mic set up, but it, there was six inches of sand you know, instead of rugs or something, it was six inches of sand on the floor and the, the mic set up and that and all that stuff. And I thought, gosh, this is, this is really weird. But the, what, what a wonderful talent, you know, Bryant was over the years. And I, and I must admit my favorite, favorite album was Pet Sounds. And uh, so I was, I was honored to be a part of those things. So what era of Beach Boys recordings are, are you guys on? Well, I'd like to be able to answer that, but I don't. I, I don't know the answer to that because I never, you know, what happened is the connection was so, uh, one of my dear friends was um, Tony Asher. Through Tony, when Brian got a little scrambled later, we would rip off things like from good vibrations and put them into commercials, you know, that real high part where it just, rings off into silence and then starts cooking again after yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I did that in a McDonald's commercial and it came off so in 
course, the singers I use, we can nail all that stuff easily. As a matter of fact, we could nail it easier than the Beach Boys could because they work at it, and you know, they developed it. And all we did is just say, here's the bag, and then just do it, wham, you know. Uh, so anyway, uh, Tony later showed this thing that I had done to, uh, to Brian, and Brian listened to it, and he said, oh, my God, that's great. Do you mind if I use that sometime? <laughs> and I, that back in those days, oh my God, I can't believe that we ripped him off. He was wanting to know if he could use it sometime. That's uh, <laughs> you, you you mentioned not knowing, uh, and it's interesting because of the nature of your job. Sometimes I, I, it would behoove the artist not to credit you, right? People want. Uh, the the audience to think that it's that it's them and it's so there is no definitive list of your recordings. I mean, not even close. What's oh, yeah, online? Yeah, right. No, that, that's such a well uh, well phrased question there because what happened is uh, as we did all those motion pictures, you know, the Hunt for Red October, you know, all the stuff we did in Russia, all, all of those things that 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 I did. Uh, People would say, well, I didn't see your name in the credits. I said, well, if you saw who catered the lunches, uh, it, they would have been there, but we wouldn't have. <laughs> uh, we, we and a lot of the musicians would not have been noted. And we grew up in the area where what I recognize is one below low profile uh, to everybody in the public. We're not a celebrity. But two, be very high profile as far as the people hiring, because they want to know who can get the job done. Uh, real quickly, do you remember working with Keith Moon? Was he in the room when you uh, cut a Keith Moon record? Crazy like a No, fox? I don't remember. I, I do not remember that. Fair there enough. Is a, a, there is a lot of the records where the artist would not be there. There were, uh, because they'd already laid their part down. Uh, but most of the time they were uh there were other things that that I can point at to where it's somebody uh like white punks on dope uh the tubes even uh elton john uh, different recordings that we'd done that I was in and out of there doing them so fast that I don't even remember what I did it's when things you know later we would hear okay blue moods uh, went platinum. Okay, well, that's the album name. I don't even remember what what we sang on it. Uh, and and we would do 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 so many of those things. I was while I was talking there, I was flashing back onto uh, uh, the Chipmunks, uh, which would be a good example of of the the idea of the day. If people were led to believe that the chipmunks were the chipmunks. They were singing. Uh, so if you say no, and you put three names with that, it wasn't the same thing. And so there is an, there's an album out there, right after I did the Beatles stuff, there's an album out there that said uh, the, uh, the chipmunks sing with children. And we did a bunch of stuff like uh, uh, whatever. Uh, any, anyway, there's a picture on that album, and it shows Ross Bagdasarian, who was David Seville and the creator, and it shows Pete King, who was the arranger on the session, and it shows uh, Jimmy Joyce, who 
uh, contracted the kids' singers on the session, and then me. And uh, we're standing there with a piece of music, and we're looking at all that. And there's never any mention of who I am. But it's funny, because it's a picture on the back of the album, and who I was was Alvin. <laughs> and, and there's your picture, but nobody is uh, nobody's acknowledging because you don't exist. Gotcha. So, so is that you on the Chipmunk sing the Beatles? Yeah, I love that record. That's a fantastic record. Uh, uh, one more time, it's Ron Hicklin is our guest. So you re- you retired uh, after I, I guess building up your companies into these giant, giant, giant companies. And now you live half your time in Hawaii, so nobody feels sorry for you, no matter what happens. No. Uh, no. What's the last uh, thing that you sang on? Do you remember? Yes, I definitely do. Uh, the last thing I sang on, because I lost my voice on that session, and it turned out to be a problem where I could never get it back. Uh, and that was, uh, that was snow falling on cedars. We were about 14 hours into the call. And everybody was coughing and hacking and stuff like that. And Sally Stevens uh, had contracted the session. And because I would never walk out on somebody for any reason and leave them stuck, uh, people were leaving because it had gone over the eight hours that people expected. And I was still trying to gut it through. And I, I realized that, uh, that when I would take a breath, I would want to cough. And so I finished the session, and I called my wife and said, I'm coming home, and uh, I want you to take me to the hospital. And we went to the hospital, and I was in there for about three hours. And they did every kind of examination, and they said, uh, they gave me a bunch of stuff, and they said, don't sing for, uh, for a while. And I, I had gone... As I said, 18 hours a day for 40 years in front of a microphone, and my voice was just never in trouble. It was I could do anything with it. And suddenly, uh, and it wasn't nodes or anything like that. It's some kind of a spasmodic thing. And and so later, I started calling people that were hiring, trying to hire me and saying, I can't make it. I'm not, not well for it. And... What happened is about six months later, I decided to uh, to just sing uh, from a congregation standpoint uh, for some Christmas carols that I was sitting in the in, at a pew, and as I started to move my vocal cords, I would start to cough again, realizing that everything that I'd taken for granted my whole life, I didn't even realize that. If I was going to hit an, a high ooh or something, before I ever did it, my vocal cords moved to that position and I just did it. And now, just moving them, uh, so, suddenly I started to cough and everything. And I said, yeah, I, you know, thank you, God. It was a wonderful career. <laughs> and that's kind of the way it was. Wow. That is, that's, a, that's tough. I mean, that is so tough. It's like having your trumpet get run over by a steamroller if you're you know or something it's just it's over yeah but but at the at the same time i look back on it and say i had a one of a kind uh, career that absolutely uh, that really paid off uh, extremely well because right up to the point where i quit my reputation was there for the work that i did and and everything and it wasn't that i wanted to I always dreamed that I could quit as number one, but I didn't realize that I would be forced to. 
But it sounds like you're happily retired. Am I correct? I am, and I have been. I I kind of devoted my attention then to playing the golf that I never had a chance to play. In the end, do you have a favorite of uh, of all the stuff you've worked on? Uh, yeah, I I really I really still look at it as if I go from Holly Holy or I go to Last Train to Clarksville or Indian Reservation or any of these things, what I'm listening to and what I'm and what is what is really making me pleased is the is how I did the job. I never even realized it so much as when I retired. When I retired there were all kinds of tapes and things like that that were around that were gonna gonna die a, a death uh, of not being used or not played or anything else. And I was moving so quickly from one gig to the next that I never bought anything and I never had a chance to listen to it except when we'd hear it on the air. It was like Hal Blaine. He'd walk into a session and he'd have a, a chart and he'd show me that in the top 100, he had 15 of them. And I had the same <laughs> ones. You know, and yeah. he'd have them circled in red. And I'd have the same ones, and we would laugh about it, you know, and, and do stuff like that. That was the energy. That was the love of what we did and what we put into it. But later, uh, as you ask about favorites, I just still go back and look at whatever the bag was. And every one of those things that I would mention, from Last Train to Clarksville to uh, the Norman Luboff Choir or any of these things, they, or to this diamond ring, there are, there are different bags in there. And some of those, those musical genres don't require as much ability as others, but they still have a demographic. And if you cannot reach that demographic, then you're not doing the thing justice. And I listen to all that stuff, and I feel very proud of the fact that all those successes that we had in different areas managed to, uh, to say without any name credit or anything else, we were singing through the mic and reaching the demographic of that style of music. We weren't teaching them what something ought to be. We were pleasing them with what we did. And that, and that is my favorite. Gotcha. Not just yeah. one of the songs. Gotcha. Well, uh, yeah, it is amazing when you put a bunch of people in a room to try to achieve catchiness, you know, or, you know, it's such a very interesting goal. And it's, uh, and you, yeah, you definitely succeeded uh, so many times. Well, I've got Love American Style queued up now because uh, it's such a signature piece, piece for you guys. Uh, Ron, this has been so fascinating. I mean, what a interesting time, you know, it's almost just the history of America in a way, just a, a time that's, that's, gone away that's changed and but like you said the music always will be here uh forever and people will be listening to your voice forever yeah the 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 only thing i'll say to that is now when somebody says who did you record with i say well i even did the beatles and they'll say who's that what (laughs) you say what What the hell are you come and take me now (laughs) yeah yeah you've we've lived too long <laughs> yeah, well, th- some people are just too young. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Ron. This has just been fantastic. Thank you, Michael, very much. I appreciate your uh, your your questions, and they're they're well thought out. And uh, and and thank you very much for honoring me with the call.
style Truer than the red, white, and blue Love American style That's me and you And on a star-spangled night, my love My love, come to me You can rest your head on my shoulder You know, but right before I do this, I got to tell you a quick story. Sure. Because this, this one, I was in doing a, a, a McCulloch Chainsaw commercial once, and they heard me talking to the group, and, and they called me at home after we were done recording, and they said, Ron, you're the voice. You're the voice we want to represent McCulloch Chainsaw. Come on in. And I said, but I'm not a voiceover. I don't do that stuff. And they said, uh, well, come on in. So I thought, well, you called me. I didn't call you. So I went into the studio uh, <laughs> afterwards, and I sit down, and I'm standing there trying to put earphones on. They said, you don't need earphones. Just stand at the mic and give us, uh, give us this statement. And they said, it's McCulloch, 99.95. And I said, okay. And I stood there feeling very lonely. There was no group. And I said, oh, McCulloch, 99.95. <laughs> they said, uh, uh, just do it, do it like yourself. Oh, my colic, ninety nine, ninety five. You know, I'm sitting there thinking chainsaw. I got to be masculine. I got to do John Wayne or something. And so, I'm doing this, and they finally take twenty five. <laughs> I hear from the booth, and he says, and he says, finally in the booth, he says, shit, McCulloch, ninety nine, ninety five. That's what they said, and I said. Shit, McCulloch, ninety nine, ninety five, and I said, "Fine, edit off the shit. That's it." <laughs> <laughs> and I swear to God, I got all kinds of money uh, on that commercial uh, for the being the voiceover and all that stuff. And I thought, "Oh my God, well here I am again. Uh, let me try this." <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I, you, you 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 can skip it, Ron. You've given no. Me, I'll uh, I'll try one more. Okay. This is Ron Hicklin. Thanks for listening to WFMU and Michael. Thank you. Hmm, the Ron Hicklin Singers. The Ron Hicklin Singers? Uh, yep. <laughs> Ron Hicklin. Hmm. Hey, the ah, Ron Hicklin singers. Ron Hicklin always did like this. Love American style, truer than the red, white, and blue. Love There's an easier way to do this, you know. No, really? Do what? Oh, show them who the Ron Hicklin singers are. And uh, tell them that, well, they can get the same vocal group on products from TM Productions. Uh-huh. Well, what's the better way? Well, first of all, we turn off the set. Hey, uh, what kind of a set is that? Uh, don't worry about it. And now we turn on the 16-track. You've got a 16-track recorder in your dining room? Don't worry about that either. We can take certain liberties. No, what I want to do is play this TM cut for you. People who make a good day better. WSBA. You're keeping company with people who care. 
like this. TM makes custom products. You can choose the type of music, and you can choose the type of vocal. That's the message. W-S-B-A-N-U. And the optional group is the Ron Hicklin Singers, huh? You got it. Now, all we have to do is describe the group a little further. <laughs> oh, sure. Well, Hicklin has a mustache. He's um, about six foot. No, no, no. Uh, big... let's, uh, let's, let's try it this way. Roger, acting like a teeny bopper on the way, What are we listening to Mark Lindsay for in the middle of this demo? Hold on. We're listening to our group, too. Those are the Ron Hicklin singers, huh? Yeah. They've been the backup group for Mark Lindsay, the Raiders, Andy Williams, Ringo. And uh, Wayne Newton, Gary Puckett, Bobby Sherman, Cher. Then there's Neil Diamond, Michael Jackson. That's pretty impressive. Well, check this out. Those are performers they've backed up. And now, I'm about to reveal a startling industry secret. Ron Hicklin and company were also the group for the monkeys. Then I saw her face. Now I'm a believer. The group, essentially. Most of the voices you've heard on Monkey's records have really been the Ron Hicklin singers. And it's the same with everything this group has done. Now there's David Cassidy, but the rest is pure Hicklin. Pure R.A. Did you know that Gary Lewis is really mostly Ron Hicklin? No, and did you know that Sonny Bono was really Connie Stevens? (laughs) It's no put on. Now, you may ask, what about movie scores? I was just thinking I might ask that. Well, it's our old friends again, doing the vocal parts and the theme from Rosemary's Baby, Dirty Harry, Mayan, Lady in Cement. Uh, the Music Man, M.A.S.H., Daryl Cuckoo, Guide for the Married Man, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, Hang 'em High... Now, Ray Charles, Burt Bacharach, ten different chorus leaders have used the Ron Hicklin singers as their vocal sound at some time. And you know, we're only scratching the surface here. Well, you got to learn how to take care of your records. But you see, they've all heard the Ron Hicklin singers before. They may not have known them by name, but the sound's been there, coast to coast. And after you catch these little items they've done, you're going to say, Oh, they're the ones! Kawasaki, let's see good times roll! Well, oh, they're the ones. Well, that's Ron Hicklin. And the singers. And the singers. What do you think? Aren't you going to tell them about Hicklin's most valuable player awards or, or the write-up in the Wall Street Journal? Uh, no. Coily allowed you to sneak that in right there. Oh, right. Uh, then I guess what you're trying to say is that these singers are available to uh, anyone, huh? Mm, I think that says it pretty well. Good times, good vibes, and feeling fine. Can you dig it? Ron Hicklin Singers, the vocal alternative. Got it on the line. Available now for the country, for broadcasters, and you. And you.